And so, Father, I thank you that Jesus who died shall be satisfied, that your word will accomplish that for which it was sent. And now, God, I pray that you would send your word even as we preach. And through the power of your spirit, you would apply your word to our hearts. Um, Lord God, you, you know um, that I'm going to talk about stuff that stresses people out. And you know that I'm imperfect. <laughs> people are amening that prayer, I think. But God, you are perfect, and I pray that you would perfectly apply your word. And Lord, for those that are here this morning that weren't here last week, I pray that you would help them to trust that um, you're good and um, that they would also know the things that were in last week's message that we didn't, won't have time to talk about today. God, I'm asking you to connect dots, um, connect the dots. And I thank you that when all the dots are connected, we see the face of, of Jesus. So it's in your name, Lord Jesus, that, that we pray and we preach. Amen. Psalm 139 that we began last week. To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I rise up and when I sit down, or when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. I can't take this knowledge like fruit from some tree. I must receive this knowledge as grace, like a treasure placed in a, in a field or a seed uh, planted in broken and fertile soil. Next verse. Where shall I go from your spirit? Your ruach, your, your, your breath. Where shall I go from your spirit? For in some amazing, incomprehensible way, I am your spirit. In a vessel of clay, a golem. Last week, pre last week we preached about this psalm and, and the sanctity uh, of human life. Sanctity of human life. You can't comprehend it, and yet you know it. As a young pastor, I sat with a, a young woman named Stephanie as she died. I had never had a conversation with Stephanie. For as long as I could remember, she had been severely handicapped and strapped in a, in a wheelchair, and, and yet when she died, I remember I had this remarkable sensation or awareness that someone had just left the room. There had been four of us, and suddenly there was three. In our society, we insulate people from death and from birth, and I think that's a tragedy. Last week, I told you that when my son was born, and they handed him to me screaming, I, I, in my arms, screaming, I, I spoke a word, and suddenly he, he fell silent. He knew my voice. He had learned it in the womb. He came to know it in the womb. The sanctity of human life must be a spirit in the clay of humanity that is capable of recognizing the Father's voice. 
and our Father is love. One day as a new father, I was sitting on our couch feeding crackers to my one-year-old daughter Elizabeth who was standing on my lap. If, if, if you've never done such a thing, let me tell you that it's just extremely gross. It's really <laughs> gross. She was gnawing on this wet ball of wheat and, and boogers, and I remember suddenly she stopped and she looked at me, and she reached into her mouth with those little fingers, pulled out the ball of goo, and put it in my mouth, and then, and then smiled. <laughs> and suddenly I was just overwhelmed with gratitude and, and awe because uh, she recognized me. I realized that my lump of clay recognized me. I mean, on the world list of, of good deeds, it wasn't at the top, but, but it was a pinnacle for me. She recognized me, that I was a person as she was a person, and as I had given my love to her, she now enjoyed giving my love, which was now her love, back to me. It was a, it was a communion. The sanctity of human life must be a spirit capable of loving and being loved. Scripture teaches that God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Solomon, son of David, writes that we do not know, we, we know not how the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child. So, so we do not know exactly when it happens, but we know that it happens, and it happens in the womb. This whole world is like a womb, according to Scripture. And so the Spirit comes to us in the beginning, just as it came to a ball of Adamah, or clay, that we call Adam. And the Spirit comes to us at baptism and communion, and the Spirit comes to us in the Word proclaimed or preached, and the Spirit falls on the church at Pentecost. That's the Spirit of Jesus. St. Paul wrote that we become one Spirit with Him. He himself said, whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. As, he, as if he himself is, is the treasure in these jars of clay, as if he himself inhabits the temple that is you, as if we are his body, whether we know it or not. Jesus said, I am the life. Not a life, the life. Human life is, human life is, is, is sacred, but we don't have a right to life. What I mean is life is a gift, as Jesus is a gift. You, you can't take it like fruit from a tree. You must receive it like love from a bridegroom or a ball of goo placed in your mouth by your little girl. Jesus is the life. And God has made Jesus our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, according to, to Scripture. A, a good free choice is sacred. But you don't have a right to choose. A good free choice is wisdom and righteousness. It's Jesus in you. It's the gift of God rising within you. Not, not that you'd be proud, but that you'd be grateful. He is our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification. Jesus is literally, did you just hear it? The sanctity of human life. He is our wisdom, he is our wisdom righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. He is what you're worth. 
He is what God pays for you. God wants you just as he wants Jesus, which is just as he wants himself. So God is the infinite treasure buried behind the curtain in the depths of the sanctuary of your soul and your neighbor's soul. When you come to the cross, the curtain rips and the spirit floods the temple that is you. He is your sanctity and you are his sanctuary. The sanctity of human life is that which you could never, ever, ever pay for. In other words, it can only be forgiven. Richard Rohr writes, forgiven, F-O-R-E dash G-I-V-E-N, means given to beforehand, before you earned it, before you were worthy of it, or, or maybe even asked for it. You were forgiven from the foundation of the earth, yet it was revealed to you upon a tree in a garden on Mount Calvary. Listen closely. You are forgiven. You. Last week I told you of an absolutely wonderful woman, beautiful woman, was forced to have an abortion at 23 weeks when she was just 15 and she saw her baby, her baby girl. She told my wife, I can't go to church. I cannot be forgiven. As I explained last week, I know that Jesus, I know this, we talked about this last week, I know that Jesus has her baby. I'm not in the least bit worried about the baby. Jesus has her baby, but does Jesus have her heart? For she thinks that she cannot be forgiven. She thinks that she is unwanted by her mother, the people of God, the Jerusalem above, and by her father, who is love, who is God. She thinks she must be aborted, for she cannot justify herself, and she has tried. I know her story well, and I've known it uh, for a long time. I've known it well, and I never, I never understood why she chose her own pain, uh, why she chose her own pain over and over and over and over again, but, but, but I do now. She's been trying to pay, and she can't pay. Maybe you're a soldier and you shot a man between the eyes. They said it was okay, but you, you, you looked at him and he looked at you and you knew, you knew he was holy. And now you think you can't be forgiven and you're trying, you're trying, trying, trying to pay. Hell is thinking that you must pay. And you can't pay. Maybe you're like David. He raped Bathsheba and murdered Uriah, and then he sees it. Like we read in Psalm 51, he cries out, Against you and you alone have I sinned, O Lord. It wasn't Uriah's life that he took. It was another's life in Uriah. David couldn't pay. But the son of David did pay, remember? Remember? But David couldn't pay. 
I strongly suspect that most all of our sin is trying to pay because we don't believe that all is forgiven. In other words, we don't have faith in grace. That's why even that first Adam took the fruit from the tree in the garden at the edge of time and eternity. The accuser tempted them to take the knowledge of the good in order to make themselves in the image of God. He tempted them to justify themselves. So they took knowledge of the good, and Jesus is the good. They took the life, and Jesus is the life. But it didn't make them good or alive. For the knowledge and the life can't be taken but only given. Actually, it's always been forgiven. Sin is trying to pay for that which cannot be bought and is always given. Well, anyway, we... We abort babies and kill our enemies because we cannot justify their existence. And then we realize that we cannot justify our own existence. Blind to the fact that we have been justified and never, ever, ever could pay for the immeasurable weight of glory that is ourselves. You can't justify yourself but not because you're worth less, but because you're worth God. He is your immeasurable weight of glory. To justify means to, to uh, make right. We each try to make ourselves right by consuming the good, like a beast or a, or a harlot, and when we see that we've become beasts and harlots, we try to save ourselves like an imitation Christ, like an antichrist. That's what we saw in the Revelation, remember? We can't bear the weight of our own glory if we think that we have to pay for that glory. Like I said last week, I think the greatest Holocaust isn't committed by moms and dads against unborn babies. I suspect it's committed by religious folks against sinners who, who suggest that most of humanity will be aborted, but not only be aborted, but endlessly tortured for God their Father no longer wants them. And he no longer wants them for they cannot and have been unable to justify themselves that they cannot pay. You know, if you believe that you must pay, you will find a way to punish yourself in an effort to pay. You will choose your pain and you will sink deeper and deeper and deeper into Sheol where men weep and gnash their teeth, but God will not abandon you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Even there, his right hand will hold you. You are his priceless treasure buried in the womb of this earth. You cannot pay for him. He is payment for you. In other words, Jesus is your justification. Sanctification and a measurable weight of glory. God is our Father, and Jesus is his word. 
Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your panim, your presence, your face, writes David. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, if I make my bed in hell, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, my golem. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none, none of them, none of them. None. God numbers everyone's days, including those of an unborn baby. It turns out that you can abort a baby, but you cannot abort God's plan for that baby. Turns out that you can murder a man, but you cannot abort God's plan for a person. So maybe the problem isn't that people die. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, said Jesus, it remains alone. Maybe the real problem isn't that people die, but that people want to remain alone. You know, sometimes Jesus spoke as if we were already in Sheol, already dead in Sheol. Sheol is to be alone, even in the presence of love. Sheol is hatred for the sanctity that constitutes human life. Sheol is a sulking older brother that refuses to join the party thrown by his father for sheer joy that his little brother who was lost is now found. The older brother thinks that he the older brother thinks that he's paid for the party, but the younger brother is the party paid for by the father. David continues. Sorry, 17. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. The word translated awake is one of a couple Hebrew words that gets translated awake, but this one's kind of peculiar, for it's often used of refer, of refer, in reference to waking from the dead. Psalm 17, David writes this. When I awake, same word, I shall be satisfied in your likeness. I mean, he writes as if we are each asleep in the illusion of our own control and not fully created until we rise or are born. Jesus was the firstborn from, from, from the dead. He writes as if we each imagine that the word of God is just dead print on a page when in fact it's the presence of God that surrounds us and sustains us like a, a baby in a womb is surrounded and sustained by its mother and the presence of, of the father. Proverbs 6, Solomon writes... When you awake, same word, the commandment of your father and the teachings of your mother, the law will talk to you. <laughs> wow, that's just, that's just crazy. Anyway, none of us comprehends how close God is and how precious each one of us are to him. Next verse, 19. 
Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those that hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete, with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. I can't tell you the number of times that I've heard Psalm 139 read or quoted in church, especially on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, and we always stop at verse 18. Embarrassed by verse 19. We can't explain the hatred. And yet the more I've thought about it, I have thought, well, gosh, is there any other way to explain the hatred? I mean, it seems that you can only hate because you love, because human life is sacred. You know, Satan does not love. And yet I couldn't find any verse where it said that Satan hates. So maybe hate is not the opposite of love, but maybe like it could some way be a a function of love. You know, there are many verses in which it talks about God hating. And God is love. So love hates perfectly. You hate because someone did not respect the sanctity of your life. Or you hate because someone didn't respect the sanctity of an unborn life. Or you hate because someone didn't respect the sanctity of a woman's life. Or you hate because someone didn't respect the sanctity of a soldier's life, or a poor person's life, or a rich person's life, or a Republican's life, or a Democrat's life. You hate because someone didn't love someone that you do love. You hate the absence of love, for love is the good, and the absence of love is evil. You hate because you love. If you've never hated, I doubt that you've ever loved. I learned this as a new father. I could tell you thousands of stories, but it became most clear to me the day that I took my daughter Elizabeth to the park in Danville, I think, I think she was about three. I told you before, she had learned to slide down the slide. So she was so excited, she'd stand on the top of the slide and say, see me, see me, see me, see see me. She was enjoying the fact that I was enjoying the fact of her mere existence and immeasurable weight of glory, a priceless treasure in this amazing little earthen vessel. And then another child joined her. And another parent began enjoying the immeasurable weight of glory, the priceless treasure in her earth and vessel, her little girl, but she didn't enjoy my little girl, wouldn't even look at her. Finally, I remember Elizabeth, she just stood on top of the slide. She turned and stared this lady down, and she just started screaming, see me, see me, see me, see me, and she wouldn't even look. But I looked, and I hated that woman. I literally fantasized about picking up a board and smacking that lady in the head (laughs) while screaming at her, you look at my little girl. She is fearfully and wonderful made. She is wonderfully made. She can slide down a slide better than you or you, your little girl. I mean, don't you get it? Out of her own mouth, she once took a glob of goo and she put it in my own mouth. Don't you get it? She's the temple of God, you stupid turd. I was so angry. I remember I was about to get up and go act on my inclinations when I heard the Father's voice. 
like a word whispered in the depths of my soul from behind a curtain. Peter, that woman is my little girl. Just as Elizabeth is your little girl. She also says, see me, see me, see me. And you don't. Peter, there are children living in piles of garbage just south of the border. They say, see me, see me, see me. And you say you do, but you don't. Peter, there are billions and billions crying, see me, see me, see me, and you don't. And I hate that. And now that you see that, you hate yourself. So shall I hate you, my little boy? Peter, what will we do with all this confused and imperfect hatred? David cries out, depart from me, men of blood, and yet we know that David is a man of blood. Should David abort himself? He cries, do I not hate them with perfect hatred? I think the answer is, no, David. You do not hate them with perfect hatred. You do not love them with perfect love, and so you do not hate them with perfect hatred. Hatred. What is perfect hatred? Is it endless torment, endless evil in a, in a place called hell? What if I took that woman that didn't see my daughter and I locked her in a dark room and I said this to her, because you didn't see my daughter, now you can ever, never, ever, ever, ever see the immeasurable weight of glory that is my daughter. And even if you want to see my daughter, you cannot see my daughter, for I want to endlessly hate you for your hate. Your punishment for refusing to love as I love is that you can never, ever, ever love, and I will never, ever love you, but endlessly stew in my own loathing of you. <laughs> Well, that's absurd, isn't it? It's not only absurd, I think it's satanic. Through his prophets, God says, love good and hate evil. So what is the good? Well, the good is God, and God is love. And the good, I suppose, is everything that he has made. Every good and perfect gift comes down the Father of lights in whom there is no shadow or variation due to change. And what is evil? Well, evil is in the absence of love. To hate evil is not to endlessly preserve evil in a place called hell. The doctrine of endless conscious torment in hell means that Satan gets his way. And God is endlessly frustrated, stewing in his own loathing of us. Satan gets his way and God is endlessly frustrated, or even worse, God gets his way, but his way is satanic. For he wills that his children would never be made in his image, but remain forever alone and unwanted. That is, God wills to not be salvation. He wills to not be Jesus. The name Jesus literally means God is Salvation, you understand? It's not okay to not believe in Jesus. It's satanic. 
Perfect hatred is also translated complete hatred or completed hatred. The word taklit comes from a root word that means to accomplish. If on the cross Jesus spoke Hebrew, and you know, it was trans- he could have been Aramaic, could have been Greek. We, we have the Greek version. But if he, if he spoke Hebrew, he may have used this word. It is finished. It is perfected. It is completed. It is accomplished. Do you understand? Hatred has a purpose. It comes to an end. Perfect love has no end because perfect love is the end, the end of all things. Perfect hatred is the perfection of love. Its purpose is the annihilation of all that would keep us from loving and being loved. Perfect hatred is self-annihilating. It's the end of hell. God hates hatred be another way to say it. God hates Sheol. He is the eternal consuming fire in which it is destroyed in Revelation chapter 20, verse 14. He's the death of death. He's the end of darkness, lies, and separation. He is even the voice whispering to you in the darkness, this, my dear, is not your home. What is it that I hate in my children? Because there's stuff I hate in my children. I hate anything and everything that would separate them from me. (laughs) Which is the very same stuff that separates them from each other. Which is everything that keeps each of us from enjoying the party that is the kingdom of our Father. John 12, Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and it dies, it remains alone. Whoever loves his psyche loses it. But whoever hates his psyche in this world will keep it for eternal life, eternal zoe. Do you you get that? You are to hate your psyche in this world, commanded to hate it. Psyche is is the Greek, uh, nephesh in Hebrew, Translated life, self, or or soul in English. When when God breathed his spirit, remember, into Adam, he became a living soul, a nephesh. Your psyche in this world is your unfinished substance. It's the golem that has not surrendered to the spirit of God. It's the self that thinks it creates its own self. Your psyche in this world is the self that believes it must pay. We see, that self cannot be at rest with absolute grace, who is your Father. It's your self-righteous self that keeps you from the love that is God. It's your false self in which your true self is imprisoned. It's your ego that keeps you from loving and being loved. It's the womb from which you are to be born into the party eternal. Perfect hatred is the revelation of perfect love. It's the moment in which the will of God hanging on the tree in the garden lifts his head and cries, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. They have not the knowledge of the good. (laughs) They know not what they do. And then it is finished, it is perfected, it is accomplished. He is the firstborn of all creation, and you are born in him. 
Perfect hatred is the forgiveness of God, which is a revelation of relentless love. At the cross, the Son of David hates our hatred and bears it to destruction. At the cross, the Son of David gives us his life, which is the good, which is love, which is the eternal will of our Father. A good father bears his children's failures and gives them his life. Jesus is the presence of the Father. Jesus is the judgment of the Father. Jesus is his panim, his face. Well, David cries, men of blood, depart from me. And David is a man of blood. And then I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. David is his own enemy. Can he depart from himself? Can my friend who's had an abortion abort herself and yet love herself as the eternal weight of glory that she truly is? Can a sinner die and yet live? For every sinner, every sinner is a child of God. What should David do? What should we do about the blatant disregard for the sanctity of human life in our society? Should, should, should we pass laws? Well, laws are important, but they cannot make anyone love love. They can't make a mom or a new dad love their baby. Laws can't make anyone see the glory of God hidden in a temple of clay. And how do we enforce laws? We make people pay, or at least that's what we think. Yet no one can pay for the glory of God hidden in temple of clay. That's the point. You can't pay. Except perhaps with the knowledge that you can't pay. You can't pay, and that knowledge annihilates something, doesn't it? It annihilates the human ego. You can't pay for life, except perhaps with the knowledge that the life has paid for you. Jesus had paid for you. He is the sanctity of your life. The knowledge of the eternal judgment of God separates a sinner from his or her sin. Verse 22, I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies, cries David. And then search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any wicked, grievous way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. What does David do about the blatant disregard for the sanctity of human life in his society? He exposes himself to the judgment of his father. Do you remember what he did when Nathan revealed that he was the man of blood who murdered Uriah? David confessed, and then Nathan said, your sin has been taken away from you, forgiven. David threw himself on the ground before the Lord, and the presence of the Father bore David's sin to destruction and gave David his own life. The Father hates sin because he so earnestly and relentlessly loves sinners. The father bore David's sin to destruction and gave David his own life. The son of David literally died bearing David's ego to destruction. Remember, we read that in 2 Samuel 12. And the son of David was born, who is David's wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. In 2 Samuel 12, he's named Solomon, but we know he's a picture of the Prince of Peace, Jesus, our sanctification um, and redemption and wisdom and righteousness. 
But you see, David saw that he could not pay for himself. And then he began writing songs that God has paid for us all. David came to believe in the sanctity of his own life, which caused him to believe in the sanctity of his neighbor's life. David submitted to the judgment of his father, then David sang and preached the judgment of his father, relentless love. So what do we do about the blatant disregard for the sanctity of human life in our society today? We know why I believe in the sanctity of human life. I've thought about this long and hard. Primarily, I think, I think I believe in the sanctity of human life, which is to say I believe in, in Jesus, which is to say I believe in God because of the way my dad looked at me. I was an unpopular, uncoordinated, pudgy, and cowardly preacher's kid who got picked on all the time at school, but my dad looked at me as if I contained all the treasure in his world. You may have had a terrible dad, but that's the way your heavenly father looks at you, as if you contain all the treasure in his world because you do. He looks at you like this. It's, it's Father's Day, so I thought maybe I could end with this. God the Father looks at you like Solomon looks at Dia in the movie Blood Diamond. You may remember that Dia was kidnapped, lied to, made to do bad things in order that he would think he was bad and then do bad things in the service of the evil warlord uh, who ruled over the diamond mine where Dia was enslaved. Solomon, Dia's father, descended into that hell to find Dia. He has a partner who's looking for buried treasure, but Solomon is looking for Dia buried in a world of lies and fear and shame. His partner, Leonardo DiCaprio, he, he finds the treasure... And Solomon finds Dia and then sets him free. Dia! Young Bay! Young Bay! What are you doing? Bella, dear Avanti of the Proud Mende tribe. You are a good boy who loves soccer and school. Your mother loves you so much. She waits by the fire making plantains and red palm oil stew with your sister Yanda. And the new baby. The cows wait for you on Babu. Wild dog who wants no one but you. Hmm? I know they made you do bad things, but you're not a bad boy. I am your father who loves you. And you will come home with me and be my son again. value 
does not depend on what you do. But what you do is dependent upon your knowledge of your unconditional and irreversible value, the sanctity of your life. Dia didn't pull the trigger, and yet every time we sin, every time we discount the sanctity of our life or our neighbor's life, we do pull the trigger. <laughs> we pull the trigger, and then hanging on the tree in a garden, Jesus Christ, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And then it is finished. It is perfected. It is completed. It is accomplished. We know that we cannot justify ourselves when we see that we are and have always been justified by the eternal Word of God, our Father. Jesus, who is also named Solomon, is the face of your Father. And when you look at, at your neighbor, you see, you can look at your neighbor with his eyes. And that is what changes the world. This is the sanctity of your life. He took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. And he took the cup, saying, this is the covenant, the eternal covenant in my blood. He's looking at you. And from you, he's fixing to look at everyone you meet. Dark cups are wine, light cups are juice. And it's all the sanctity of your life. Amen. 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 Hey, and now before you go, because of the topic, you, you may be saying, okay, okay, but Peter, what exactly am I to do about the blatant disregard uh, for the sanctity of human life in our society today? Well, you, you could vote. I think, I think that's good. You could study the issues and you could vote accordingly about uh, abortion, about the military, about borders, about love. <laughs> uh, you could adopt babies. You could support, uh, you could support um, a crisis pregnancies center. You, you could minister to immigrants. You could minister to soldiers with PTSD. You could go to Hong Kong and minister to women that are trapped in, in shame and fear that they are unwanted and no one ever could uh, forgive them. You could speak the truth in love and prepare to be crucified because that happens sometimes. But none of it matters 
if you don't do this. This whole message, I was reminded by this quote by Kierkegaard. He, he said, God has no cause in the human sense of the word. God's end up there worried about the next election. He says, God has no cause. If you want to serve God's cause, it means this, to face examination. What did he mean by that? I think he meant Psalm 139. He meant sit in the presence of your Father and receive his judgment. And his judgment is Jesus. This is how much I love you. This is what you're worth. This is who you are to me. This is the way, the truth, and the life. You see what that means if you've had an abortion or you've been part of an abortion? The most important thing, the only thing, you must believe you're forgiven. <laughs> and when you believe that, you will change the world. So in Jesus' name, believe the gospel, and we invite you to stick around and keep worshiping in here. Um, if you'd like to talk, we invite you to go down to the entryway. Members of the prayer team will be down front here, and they would love to pray with you. You know, also, um, God tells us, he invites us to unload our stuff on other people, called the confession of sins. And when you do that, their job is not to fix you, because they can't fix you. Their job is to look you in the eye and say, in the name of Jesus, you are forgiven. I'm not BSing you about that. You have to believe that. In Jesus' name, amen.